Thank you for listening to the Divine Nobodies Podcast with Eric Ajna and Jennifer Lynn. If you enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe so you never miss a show. If you're on Instagram, please follow us at Divine Nobodies Podcast and join our ever-growing community of lightworkers and spiritual visionaries. Together, we can raise the frequency of our planet and bring in a new era of awakening and understanding. Welcome to our tribe. And now your hosts, Eric Ajna and Jennifer Lynn. Oh, hello. Thank you for tuning in to Find Nobody's Podcast. Welcome back, everyone. How are you doing, Jen? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing fantastic because there's a lot of crazy stuff going on in the world. And I wanted to talk about this, Jen. It's not what we're going to be totally talking about today, but I wanted to talk about Will Smith slapping the taste out of Chris Rock's mouth. Did you see that? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I saw it. All my chats were blowing up. As soon as it happened, everybody was like, oh my gosh, did you see that? Yeah. And I'm not one that follows the Oscars. I actually no. didn't even see this Oscars in which it happened. Uh, I didn't But either. I am one that tries to stay informed with news and things like that. And a few people actually texted me because, you know, I'm a child of the 90s and I know who Will Smith is. I know who Chris Rock is because uh, they were a part of my childhood growing up. Yeah. So those of you, mm. especially by now, you guys probably know what happened. Chris Rock, who is a well-known comedian. I like some of his comedy said a uh, kind of distasteful remark or a joke or a bad joke about Will Smith's wife, Jada Pinkett Smith, which I don't I don't think it was the worst joke that he would have maybe ever said, but he mentioned something about, I guess, her hair, likening to her, her hair to, I guess, a movie from G.I. Jane back in the day, right? And you know what's funny? I just saw that movie for the first time, like, literally a week ago. You and that's an old ago. movie. And it's great, I haven't by seen the way, it at all. haven't seen it. Yeah, it's And there's really a lot good. of speculation about what it is that he really meant by it. You know, he could have been referring to her alopecia or he could have just been referring to the fact she didn't have hair. Anyways, I didn't want to spend too much time on it today, but that happened. And it was shocking to a lot of people, including myself. It was hard to know whether or not it was actually staged or not. I think a lot of people in the beginning thought it was staged. Yeah, there's a part of me that still thinks it was staged. Yeah, and it's the crazy, crazy thing about them being actors is you just never know what's going on. Anyways, there was a, it was obviously very shocking. There was a part towards the end where he was accepting his his office where he said something that kind of stuck out to me. I can kind of remain neutral and indifferent to the whole thing, but he said this speech, Jen. He was doing his little Oscar acceptance speech. I think it was for Best Actor. And I don't know, I couldn't tell you what the movie was from, but I, I picked up his speech and he said, love makes you do crazy things. Love makes you do crazy things. He said that. And it's Ooh. true. Yeah, it's, it's true. true. Love does and, make you do crazy things. And it makes it you makes do crazier you... things when you're already crazy. <laughs> when you're already crazy. But I guess from my, my perspective is that love does make you do crazy things. It makes you love others unconditionally. It makes you take accountability over your life. Be selfless. Be compassionate in the face of adversity, all types of adversity. Mm-hmm. But I'll tell you what love doesn't make you do, Jen. It doesn't make you slap a motherfucker in the face for telling Agreed. a joke, mm-hmm. right? That's not love, my friend, Will. That is ego making you feel like slapping someone in the face is the most loving thing you can do for your family while forgetting that Chris Rock is also a part of that family, right? Yeah. And I was thinking and about this. Like, yeah, he's a comedian. That's what they do. <laughs> that's what they do. And, 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 and if it wasn't, for, comedians are there to sort of take the edge off and they sort of like bring light to a lot of things that people in these really high positions can't normally talk about. So they have a place for sure. Although I do believe that they were both at fault for that situation. I was thinking about this too, Jen. I want to know what you think. So Will Smith's first name is Will, right? He obviously had some sort of internal struggle going on. Him and his relationship with Jada has uh, gotten a lot of scrutiny and a lot of attention. And I just imagine that that all sort of piled up on him and all at once, right? 
Mm-hmm. And I was thinking in the chakra system, out of the seven chakras, you have the solar plexus. And what does the solar plexus represent? It represents Will. That just happens to be Will Smith's name. And his reaction in that situation was a straight up blocked solar plexus action. That's what happens when your solar plexus isn't checked. Anytime your solar plexus isn't checked, ego comes in, wants to sabotage all of that stuff. It makes me think of this quote by Alan Watson. He says, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. We all think we're the good guy against what we perceive to be some sort of enemy, not realizing that you both lose whenever you dwell in the realm of polarity and kind of separate yourself from another human being. And uh, the way that I see it is there's only one person in this room. It's God, source, whatever it is that you want to call it. And that force would never encourage you to hurt another human being. So there's only one force in your life that would ever tell you to do that. Well, there's only one. And that is ego. That is ego, Jen. That's a really good example. You know, I didn't I didn't even think about it in like a spir- spiritual context when I was watching it. I was just like, whoa, he lost his mind. Yeah, he totally lost his mind. And it, it was a really powerful and actually really interesting thing to see because uh, at least for one moment in time, we got to see that these are actually regular, normal, regular, everyday people. It's hard to see that because mm-hmm. whenever we think of people like Will Smith or Chris Rock, we're thinking of the movies that they've been in, the characters that they've played. And then when you see somebody at their very, very lowest, it kind of puts it in a perspective for you like, hey, these people are not exempt from these type of issues. Right. And the one thing that I found really interesting about this is it's sort of, the situation is a perfect example of our collective sort of interest in toxic masculinity and violence. Every single Mm -hmm. person that saw that, I'm sure it was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe him. I can't believe that he did that. What a fucking monster Will Smith is. What a monster Chris Rock is for doing that. So we're so shocked by the fact that this sort of violence exists while at the same time we'll go, online and sort of perpetuate the same type of violence with our words through things like social media, outlets like Twitter. You know, we love seeing other people suffer. We're like the people in the bleachers at the Colosseum in Rome waiting for the lion to swallow the gladiators. That's kind of how I see it. You know, I don't know the full extent of Jada's medical condition, but I was thinking about this because I also uh, lose my hair. So I have alopecia and it hasn't happened in a few years, but the last time I lost my hair, I lost a pretty significant amount. I had a, a size about the about the diameter of like a maybe like a softball right in the front, yeah. and um, I had to wear a wig for a couple months until that hair grew in and kind of covered up that bald spot. But here's the thing about alopecia: I have autoimmune alopecia because I have an autoimmune disease. But um, some people just get alopecia just they have it, but yeah. it's not linked to any other major medical conditions. It's just your hair falls out, you know? So it's not like she had cancer and she was dying. I mean, it's 100% a vanity thing at this yeah. point, you know, yeah. like she has no hair and that's it. Like there's yeah. no other medical conditions attached to it. Yeah. And it's difficult to say. There's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, theories out there, you know, it was definitely wrong. Regardless, if that's the thing is we really don't know the intention, Chris Rock. He could have just been talking about a movie. Visually, she just has a bald head. That's what G.A. Jane had. He didn't mention anything explicit about her having alopecia. It just happened to be a sensitive subject. And I was actually watching um, a few different podcasts, and I think Joe Rogan actually talked about this too, where it's like some comedians out of respect for the people that they're roasting or trashing on will get permission or at least let the people know in advance that that's what they're doing. He didn't do that. And you know what? You know, like one of the crazy, I heard the craziest conspiracy theory the other day, Jen, and obviously I don't believe this, but there is people, there are legitimate people out there that believe that it was uh, all set up as a way to bring light to alopecia because Pfizer is uh, trying to pass, or actually they're going to come out with a new alopecia medication. And somehow Pfizer sponsored that entire thing. You know, that's some shit. Pharma's clever, but uh, they're not that clever. <laughs> I mean, that's, people are that's clever. A that's crazy. what it shows you. 
Yeah, people that's are a little creative. crazy. I mean, yeah, I think it's there's a real possibility that that was staged for, you know, multiple reasons, right? Like Chris Rock hasn't come out with anything, like any like new specials in a while. Um, Will Smith was winning an award. This was a very low viewing for the Oscars. I mean, there's like multiple reasons why they would want to stage something to get publicity. But yeah. I don't know. The pharmaceutical company, that just seems like a little crazy. And, and what, you, what you're saying would make sense, but why would anybody do it at the cost of potentially being canceled? right the cost of their own career because it does it would yeah. never look good for chris rock to to be publicly slapped in the face that's going to be archived oh, and people forever. are going to remember that for yeah. the rest of his career mm-hmm. it's going to be sure. the butt of certain jokes and that's the same thing with will smith the main issue that i had with this whole thing one was both of them were in the wrong and at the same time it just shows this sort of like this this disconnection with reality that maybe hollywood has when you have will smith that went up there and slapped the shit out of chris rock and then accepted his oscar speech and gave this really provocative and really sentimental speech about love being on the side of love and then also you know saying that love makes you do crazy things i'm just like whoa i don't know if i'm looking at this the wrong way i, I assume that i do just based off of our sort of spiritual dimension that we live in love will never ever cause you to hurt another person physically yeah right? I agree. That was the main thing I wanted to, to to kind of point out in this whole thing. I didn't agree with Will Smith. I didn't agree with Chris Rock. I think we as a nation have normalized this behavior by not, hold, not holding each other accountable for the things that we say and we do. And it's it's so crazy how fooled we are by the roles that they play. We don't even know whether or not what they're doing is is real or fake. And we enable this type of behavior in a lot of ways. In a lot of ways, too. I mean, I, I know some people will say it's not their responsibility. When you're in the positions of power that they are, they do words do matter. And they have a, a responsibility to present themselves in a kind way. It reminds me of this quote by Marilyn Williamson, and she says, It's true in America we want both. We want a nonviolent society, but neither do we want to dedicate ourselves to a nonviolent society. And we're quickly learning that we cannot have both. Any nation that is not dedicated to peace will be at war. So this is uh, relevant, I think, to what we're talking about is because there's a lot of people that were so shocked by the fact that that happened, while at the same time engaging in their own sort of many forms of violence in their own life that enabled the exact same type of behavior. So I think the one thing that we should pull out from Chris Rock and Will Smith is that we've been those people before. We've been both of them. So before you pass judgment on either of those people, uh, it's really important to put yourself in those shoes. If you're a human being, you can probably acknowledge that you've been there before. Yeah, for sure. I think I'm I'm team Chris Rock though. Really? I don't know. Why? Yeah, I feel like a comedian, like that's what they do is they make light of serious situations. And I don't think that he said he made that joke to be malicious or to intentionally hurt her. I don't think that that was the purpose. It's true. It's true. It's true. But I'm, I'm thinking of, okay, well, maybe what if we expand our awareness just a little bit? Is our willingness to accept the fact that this is what comedians do? They trash on people. That in and of itself, I guess maybe from my more utopian type of Alan Watts inspired Buddhist Taoist world, shouldn't just be happening at all. Right. I think but within the confines of our Western society, it's one of those things that we're just kind of okay with. That's what comedians do. But mm-hmm. the fact that somebody like Will Smith said in his speech, we're actors, we have to be okay with people shitting on us. We have to be okay with people talking negatively about us. And if you go on Twitter and if you go on YouTube, you'll find tons of that happening. Tons. Oh my gosh. Right? Yeah. And if you're a human being, which a lot of us forget the fact that they're human beings, right? that can take a toll on somebody. It sure can. Look at so whether or not it is a, exactly exactly so whether or not it is in a social socially acceptable thing I think is irrelevant in some ways because we are laughing at their expense and if one if somebody is completely solid in their 
self, if they've practiced their really strong and secure attachment styles, which is what we're going to talk about, mm-hmm. then they won't be affected by st- stuff like this. But you have people like Britney Spears, who obviously had a really d- a tough run. Michael Jackson, Will Smith, you can see it on his face, like his eyes sort of glossed over. This is a guy that's probably been through some shit in his relationship. Oh, for It's really sure. important to remember that these people are human beings. So I say, yes, comedians do have a place. But if we ever want to get to that sort of brave new world, that sort of world that you know maybe Barbara Marciniak talks about in Bringers of the Dawn, we need to just throw all this shit out the window, start over. Yeah. I don't know. I think there has to be some sort of polarity. There has to be has it's to true. be something because you can't appreciate the good without experiencing experiencing the opposite. That's true. And I think that's a way to practice balance in our realm. But if you want to transcend all of that mm. shit, you yeah. know, you want to be like Ramana Maharshi with this shit, then go a step further. But yeah, I think that's the most practical thing because yeah. we're not going to be able to get rid of it, Jen. Just like you said, we're not going to be able to get rid of it. You know, I saw, um, and this is kind of ties in, but I saw a really interesting meme and it said bombing for peace is like fucking for virginity (laughs) what but i was like yeah exactly you know doing something bad for a positive outcome yeah like you gotta also think of like the the positions that it like the the type of mind frame you have to be in in order to be an actor i've known people that are actors i live in los angeles right i have uh, family members that are actors and it seems like there are some people that can use acting as a way to escape from who they really are, Yeah. right? So even just the idea of acting, which is playing a role, being something other than what you are from the spiritual perspective is exactly what the ego does with the spirit, mm-hmm. right? So you're, you're almost like doing this fractal thing where you have you already have your spirit, you have your ego on top of it, and then on top of the ego, you have these roles that you play. So it's like something that just continuously goes on. And I just feel like you got to be careful when you go into this acting realm. Yeah. You know? Like, uh, what was that actor, uh, Ace Ventura? Oh, yeah. Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey. Yeah, exactly. He talks a lot about that and why well, he loved sure. acting. He was one of those people that, like, we all loved growing up. Yeah. He never shows any good. signs of weakness or any form of sort of malicious intent when it came to anything. So when Jim Carrey completely changed... Nobody can be like, oh, that fucking guy lost his mind. They're like, no, there must be something to this whole spiritual thing. Yeah. Because Jim Carrey's never steered us the wrong way, ever. <laughs> right? I agree. So when this guy comes back and he's like telling you how it is in the industry, telling you about psychedelics, telling you about his experience with spirituality, you're like, whoa, whoa. maybe there's something to this. Mm-hmm. And then as he sort of evolved, he started to look like Terrence McKenna. That's a good thing too. Oh, he totally did. <laughs> <laughs> he totally like, did. There was some rumor that went around that he was going to uh, play Terrence McKenna in a bio uh, yeah, film. Yeah, I saw that. I don't that. know if that was real. Did that ever come out? I don't think so. I mean, but it could be in the works. I don't even know. I, I just saw it online. I don't know if people just really wanted it to happen, but I wouldn't be surprised if, if uh, he ended up doing that. I wouldn't either. Okay, thank you guys for joining me in general. We sort of wax poetic about this thing. I know it's probably been on your minds. You, everybody listening has at least contemplated this sort of situation because there's a lot going on, and uh, I just want the best for them both. Uh, from what I heard, they sort of sorted everything out and uh, everything's good to go. And they're dedicating, I guess, their life moving forward to to healing and loving. And that's always a good thing. But today we're going to segue into something that I feel like maybe Will Smith or Chris Rock should probably take this test and figure out what their attachment style is because I feel like it would help them out. We're going to get into attachment styles. This is something that very similar, I think, in a way to the love languages and the fact that you can go online and take the test. Did you take the test, Jen? I took the test. Yeah. I took it and um, I got a different result than I thought I would. So, really? um, yeah, because a lot of this goes back to how you were treated as a child and childhood experiences. And um, those are more closely aligned with me being di- dismissive and avoidant. 
Um, yeah. But I actually took the test and it says I'm secure. So yeah, uh, yeah. I, I think that I'm secure, but I was on the cusp. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't tell you if you're on the cusp or not. It doesn't give you like an actual score. It just gives you the outcome. But it if I had sense. to guess, there's some questions that I answered that I know were in the dismissive avoidant category. Yeah. And it's a really important thing that you bring up because this is a spectrum. And just before we get into exactly what the attachment styles are, it's really important to not get attached to the labels, the definitions that me and Jen are going to be talking about. This is just a point of reference. This would really help somebody that um, has never really dived into the, the inner workings of how they operate in relationships. This is something that I think would become a lot more obvious as you go down uh, your spiritual path and you turn more inwards. So it's really important to just use this as a point of reference and realize that all the we can embody all of these things to various degrees. The best place I think that we can start is to get into what exactly is attachment theory. Attachment styles, it's a unique way in which we relate to others in, I would say, predominantly romantic relationships, but can also be seen in platonic friendships as well. Mm-hmm. This was first developed by psychologist Mary Ainsworth and psychiatrist John Bowbley, I think I pronounced that right, in the 1950s. And um, attachment style is shaped and developed in early childhood, they say, and it is in response to our relationships with our earliest caregivers, which would be our parents, whatever you identify as being your parent. And uh, essentially, our adult attachment style is thought to mirror the dynamics we had with those caregivers, with those parents, and as infants and children. So there are four main adult attachment styles, and we'll go into detail about exactly what those are. But just on the surface really quick, they are secure, anxious, avoidant, and fearful avoidant, aka disorganized. And they're said to be, from what my research, Jen, they're said to be actually a fifth style, which it's so sort of like uh, mysterious and ominous that they don't even consider it a fifth style. It's basically around psychopathy, right? Mm -hmm. People that do not have a clear attachment style, they're just all over the place. They're just like this wrecking ball that like, they're so unpredictable. It's hard to put them into these categories. We're not going to talk too much, so much about the psychopathy side, but just to give you a reference how deep this can go. Interesting. Right? Yeah. yeah, I've never heard that before. The, the fifth one makes yeah. sense. Yeah, and, and, and a lot of these, there seems to be, there's a lot of grass if you go online and try and figure out what this is. You have like the secure and anxious styles tend to have, I guess, lower anxiety. And uh, I guess the, the avoidance and the fearful avoidance tend to have, I guess, higher levels of anxiety. So we can mm-hmm. kind of gauge this by levels of anxiety that we tend to go through and feel. That's another dynamic to that. So they're typically developed in infancy based off of our relationships with our parents, just like I said. And research believe the attachment style is formed within our first year of living. And that's between seven and 11 months of age. That's crazy, right? Because it's a time in your life when you that you don't remember anything. Like, yeah. I don't remember anything from the time I was seven months yeah. old. Isn't that the craziest thing? I don't even remember being born. I know. Yeah. I, I've known people that are straight up like, oh, yeah, I remember being born. I'm like, really? How do you what? remember being born? Wow. Yeah, they, there are even some stories that Ellen Watts talked about. Like, how do you, it, it seems like almost to be a myth. How do you, do you, rem- if we can't remember when we've been born, then did it really happen? Did it really happen? Yeah. Ew. You know? Who would want to remember that anyway? Gross. Oh, yeah. Well, that's what the Buddhists consider the most traumatic experience you can ever go through is just being born. Because ultimately, in the sort of grand scale of this whole thing, there are a lot of spirits that would rather not come to Earth. So if you've made the decision to take the heroic journey into Earth, uh, chances are you're going to experience something a little bit more traumatic than what you're normally used to, just kind of traveling around in the heavens playing your harp, you know what I mean? I mean, yeah, this shit's hard. Yeah, this shit is hard. hard. It's hard being a human. So human beings, especially children, they're born helpless. So we are hardwired at birth to search for and attach to a reliable caregiver for protection, right? Mm -hmm. And that is what uh, the author Peter Lovenheim 
said, he actually wrote a book called The Attachment Effect. He writes, the quality of that first bond, loving and stable or consistent or even absent, actually shapes the developing brain, influencing us throughout life in how we deal with loss and how we behave in relationships. This uh, British psychoanalyst, John Bowley, developed the concept of attachment styles in the 15, or all around the 1500s. I guess his theory was that children's tendency to emotionally attach to their caregivers and to become distressed and seek out and seek them out in their absence was an adaptive evolutionary trait, something that allowed children to survive by clinging to an attachment figure who provided support, protection, and care when they were too young to care for themselves. And this is just segue off of this for a little second. This is the reason why I feel like love exists, because in order for a child to make it in the world, there has to be somebody to love him, mm-hmm. you know? Otherwise, it just dies. It's just natural selection would just snag that child. So I feel like mm-hmm. that in order for life to exist, there has to be a loving energy to take care of these sort of children. Imagine like a child just back in the days being exposed to so, so many elements, the potential of them dying. I wonder how many of those children perished, you know? I was trying to think of this study, and um, maybe you're going to bring this up, but there, there was a study, and I can't remember what year it was. It was of newborn babies, and then they had these newborn babies in the hospital, and um, nobody would touch them. So there was like a, a few babies where they were never touched at all. They were never hail, held. They were, their basic needs were met. They fed them um, and gave them water and changed their diaper. But outside of that, they wouldn't, they wouldn't touch them or give them any type of love. And those Damn. children um, were very sickly and a couple of them died. Really? That's crazy, right? That you could oh. die from not having a human connection. I wonder who were the mothers that actually agreed to actually doing that? Yeah, I don't think that uh, they must have been like abandoned babies. I don't know the ethics oh, behind uh, the I selection see. of the babies, but they were doing yeah. it for science. It was specifically for yeah for this study. Yeah, it might be for the same reason that you know elderly people die of broken heart syndrome when their loved yeah. ones pass on. There's this sort of like weird unseen force that uh, generates these sort of attachment and has the ability to kind of destroy us if we allow it to. So, but there there is some criticism of attachment theory among among some psychologists. They say it's a stretch to believe caregivers can so dramatically shape infants' personalities at such a young age. And I think that maybe some of these psychologists are taking this a little bit too literal. It's not. I don't think this is a 100% sort of line that they draw in the sand. I, I like to think of this whole thing as just sort of a point of reference. It has to contribute in some way. But it's true. It's like if you can't remember that far back, how do you know how it's affecting you? There has to be some yeah. sort of like force in there that is accumulating information and, and, and trying to learn how this whole life thing goes about. And I can't even remember what that is, Jen. Yeah, it, it must be that information must be stored somewhere in your brain and in your psyche that you're just not able to access as an older person. You know, That's true. Like it's in there still. But. Yeah. So they did this study called The Strange Situation, and this was by Mary Ainsworth. It was in 1969, and her colleagues ran an ex- a series of experiments known as The Strange Experiments that identified and observed attachment behaviors in children. So what her team did was they brought mothers and their infants into the lab. This might be what you're talking about, Jen. They brought their mothers and their infants into the lab and they had them play in a room with toys on the floor and with various other adults coming in and out of the room. They identified these attachment styles and how they responded to their mother. So a secure attachment style, and we'll go into exactly what these are as adults, how they affect us, but as it pertains to this study, secure attachment style, the children were playing, mother enters into the room, gives attention to the child, then the mother leaves and the children become distressed when she leaves. However, the mother, when she came back, she was able to soothe and nurture the child upon her return. So it's almost like she was making sure that the child was taken care of, left for a little bit, came back, continued to love and nurture the child. So that speaks to the secure attachment style. So an anxious 
avoidant attachment style it pertains to how it was exemplified in these children. Some children tended to avoid or ignore their mothers even before she left, showed a little emotion when she left, and when she returned, they didn't really seem to care. And how they tried to gauge this is they connected them to EKGs and monitored their heart rate, which seemed to be elevated. So mm -hmm. that's how they indicated that the child was in distress. That's yeah, sort of like... That a, avoidant dismissive, some of the traits of that are they want intimacy, but they're afraid of it. So, you know, hence the heart rate going up, like the, the desire is there, but they're afraid of it. So they just kind of freeze, which is yeah. interesting to, yeah. and how the, the trigger responses and how, you know, they were, they respond to stressful situations. And it seems like in those situations, it's not that the parent is resulting in what seemed to be like a deliberate act of physical or emotional abuse is still able to nurture the child through presence. However, it's almost like the, the parents are just not involved in their lives completely yeah. distant. They're completely void. And so the child sort of develops these sort of protective mechanisms, or maybe the parent just doesn't teach the child about what it means to love and be nurtured. So they develop this sort of aversion to that sort of attention. And then the right. other one was- And how do you trust someone that, that treats you that way? Like if your parents treat you that way, how do you ever have uh, the ability to trust others? It's true. They, 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 it seems like those parents in that situation were just completely void, completely just withdrawn from their lives. And so the last one they did was, or actually the last, the third to the last was anxious, ambivalent, resistant. So the children were distressed while the mother was there. They showed even more stress when she left and showed aggression or punishing behavior towards the mother when returning. And these children seem to be hard to comfort. And this is what I gathered from this one, Jen, is that the punishing behavior could potentially show signs of abuse from the parents punishing the child, or from the child maybe observing parents with toxic partners who abuse the mother or the parent, right? You can maybe see these with more cluster B narcissistic types of parents. And this also can be seen in parents that sort of rely on their children to supply the happiness and love and self-soothing that the parent seems unable to provide themselves. So it's almost like the child appears to reflect the parent's inability to self-soothe self -soothe, or provide validation or security for the child to feel safe. So it's like the child is acting out all the things that it learns from the parent. And there's a huge chance that if this child is distressed when the mother was there, was more in stress when she left and was completely resistant, there's a huge chance that this parent probably abused the child. Yeah, that's interesting because it, it kind of makes me think of the cliche that people say like, oh, don't stay in an unhappy marriage because... You know, your children are watching and then that's how they're learning how to interact with their partners. And I think that a lot of that is true, right? You know, it's yeah. it's very common for, you know, a child to witness witness abuse in a relationship like physical abuse. And then they also end up being in abusive relationships themselves. So yeah, it's, it's really interesting how, how uh, you do. You do learn from your parents in that way. It's totally true. And the, the reason why I feel like it's so it's even more toxic when you're a child is that you don't know what to do with those feelings, right? So right. children have this tendency to take these really complex emotions that they feel, store them in a certain area inside of their body, inside of their mind, and just keep it there until they get old enough to be self-aware and understand what they mean. That could be 15, 16, 20 years into the future. Imagine harboring that energy for that much of your life. 
And usually it comes as a result of that awakening comes as a result of it negatively impacting your life. And that's when you start sort of like venturing into those dark spaces and trying to where you start pinpointing exactly where these traumas are. So it's really, really dangerous when you're a child because you're holding onto it for so long. You know, there's no mm-hmm. child that's like 11, 12 months that is just suddenly, you know, grabs a book by Eckhart Tolle and starts reading The Power of Now and all of a sudden it all makes sense. It's like, no, these children don't have that context. So it's really important to have parents that can teach them that. So the the last part was disorganized attachment. This was the last part of the study. Children seemed uninterested and unpredictable, sometimes receptive, sometimes withdrawn, and sometimes more aggressive. And I think that this one is uh, indicative of a mother's inability to create a foundation for the child to build a solid sense of security from. For This could be like a bipolar or a borderline personality type of mother where their emotions are just all over the fucking place. And they don't even know what's up or down. They don't know where the boundaries are. And so they're sort of like this, this ball of energy uh, exploding in every direction. And they usually don't know the impact of their behavior until they're older. And they, you know, destroyed everything around themselves in their life as they get older. Yeah, this I think is the hardest one to deal with. It's that push-pull. I want you, but I want you to go away. <laughs> Like there's really no happy medium. Yeah, it reminds me of that book about uh, narcissism that's called I, I Hate You, Don't Leave Me. I think yeah, that was the name of exactly. the book. And it's like a perfect yeah. example of how that goes. So mm-hmm. I guess in closing, as far as this test go or this, this this study goes, I think this is an example of how important it is for parents to have developed a solid sense of self. Otherwise, what we do not cultivate within ourselves gets passed on through our children. And I think at an energetic level, and we talked about this before, uh, we can see how negative karma is passed down through the generations in the form of these types of trauma. Mm-hmm. These types of trauma, right. abuse, and cultivation of fear, like not even just biologically, energetically, if you do not take accountability for your shadow, for your faults, for your traumas, you will pass that to your children through your blood, through your neurochemistry, through your biology, through your emotions, through your teaching styles. Yeah. It's not, it's not just learned. It's, it's also physiologic. That's where we get into epigenetics and all that fun stuff, which you talked about before. So we're going to get into the four attachment styles, Jen. So you took your test. Which one was yours? You said it was secure? Yeah, it was secure. It came back secure and I'm surprised because I thought that I was going to be more dismissive avoidant, but um, I can really recognize the change in myself, like maybe over the last 10 years or so. I think I was much more dismissive avoidant when I was younger because I was still kind of like, I was working through a lot of trauma and seeing a therapist and, you know, working through all my mom and dad issues. So yeah. It makes sense. It makes sense. And and I can see like when I was answering questions in the test, I was thinking like, oh, yeah, this is probably a little bit more on the dismissive side, right? It, it's that, that ultra independence. Um, when you're secure, you're independent, but that ultra independence. And that's something that I still kind of go back and forth with and struggle with because yeah, I really that's... like to be alone and I really like my own space and all of that. But um cohabitating one with someone for the last seven years, I'm starting to get, <laughs> yeah. I'm starting to lighten up a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's what I was going to say and about then, your, your attachment style is that they, it, it, maybe that sort of what you perceive to be avoidance comes in the fact that you're radically independent, right? You don't have time for anything yeah. else. You mm-hmm. maybe at some point you didn't make time for uh, other people, which maybe have been perceived as being avoidant depending on what your intention is. But I, from what I've read about the secure attachment style is they can, the negative aspect of that. And it isn't always just good. I mean, there are positives and negatives to all of these attachment styles. The secure attachment style is that they they, they see relationships as a priority. However, they, they tend to allow life to unfold 
while working on creative and professional endeavors. They can be really business-oriented people, but they don't have the same drive that maybe somebody like me where it's like love is the first thing. You know, Mm -hmm. romantic love is the first thing. So maybe creating balance around that. Yeah. A huge feature of the dismissive avoidant attachment style is that um, is triggers, right? Like any kind of, any kind of emotional triggers. And uh, my default is, is fight or flight. And it's usually flight and I'll shut down and I'll just be like, nope, shut down. I'm out of here. I'm done. I'm moving on with my life. So um, that's been something that's been a huge area of growth for me for sure. Um, to not shut down and to not just like move on and to stick it out and talk through it and work on it even when I don't want to. So you're taking the natural sort of like um, journey that I think a lot of people take at your age. This is like a really perfect example of how those attachment styles can change and we become a little bit more, more self-aware. Mine's very, very similar in kind of how it moves and changes. But just a quick note here. Secure attachment style is considered low avoidance. So I actually read an article earlier today that talked about uh, the attachment styles as it goes from secure to kind of down the chart is about really how you access your flight or fight response inside of your body because a lot of this is driven by how we embrace fear or how we feel fear inside Mm -hmm. of the body and what fear makes us do in certain scenarios. So it's said about 56% of adults have a secure attachment type, right? And that's according to the foundational attachment research by social psychologists Cindy Hazen and Philip Shaver. And this was done in the 80s. It's probably different now. Oh, right? yeah, for sure. But I'd be interested a, to see 2022 numbers, right? Um, oh, right. It's yeah, like 20%. 56% seems high. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, for, for the, the 80s, I feel like, you know, like I feel like the government, the world was more or less kind of working. I remember I was born in the 80s, kind of in the 90s. Like you were still able to have fun, go outside and play. You were still, there, there was still some innocence mm-hmm. that I think that the world was still embodying, some level of decency. I feel like if we did this test nowadays, I don't know, Jen, it could be a much lower number. I think so. I think so. So secure attachment Ooh. style. This is like having Eckhart Tolle as your father and Marion Williamson as your mother. Although I don't know, I don't know how that would that would go because whenever they'd have issues, he'd be like, you know, just live in the now, be present, and then Marion Williamson just gonna go and run for president. So. Oh my god! But, and and the two of them competing to talk, like trying both of them trying to get their words in. Oh no! Hell no! That'd be terrible. Oh my um, god! I love them both, but yeah, I just can't imagine that. Marion Williamson is show. Yeah, Marion Williamson is show is so quick on her feet. She's very quippy. She's yeah. very witty. And Eckhart totally mm-hmm. just takes forever to get his point across. She's like, come on, Eckhart. Come on, Eckhart. Come on. I don't got time for say. this. I got an election to yeah. take care of. You know what I mean? But I'm talking totally. like in the realm of how they would more than likely treat their their kin, right? Their children. So just this some- this is why I was surprised that I got secure attachment because my <laughs> parents were completely opposite. Like, um, you know, the secure attachment, you- Usually your primary caregivers um, are really dependable and they don't abandon you and provide you with love and are really like well-adjusted themselves. And that was not my experience. That was the opposite of my experience. So yeah. um, so that's just proof that, um, yes, a lot of this does have to do with your childhood, but you can work on it and you can change it. Like you, you, you cultivated that strong independence very young. And I think uh, uh, mm-hmm. an advantage to that is, is, is one, your ability to learn and gather information. You're looking at that situation as something to, uh, almost as a, an example of what not to be. 
yeah, like an example exactly. of, of how you need to cultivate that within yourself because you acknowledge the sort of downside of seeing it play out in somebody else, that sort of thing. And a lot, and so, of, that, a lot of that I think is like innate too. Like there's just some traits that you're born with in your personality. Um, there's this saying, like a Southern saying that uh, you're either born an oak or you're born a willow. Oh, really? And, yeah. Are you ever born maybe an oaky from Muskogee? No, like an oak tree, like, oh, like an oak, you know, an oak tree, with yeah. deep roots and really strong. Yeah. Or you're bo- born a willow and you're just kind of flopping around and blowing I in the wind. I don't know. We got to unpack that a little bit, Jen, because I like the willows. You know why I like the willows? Because they flow back and forth. I know. They're so They're dreamy. sort of like the, the like, pendulums that like swing back and too. forth. But but the, the issue with the willows, when you're swinging back and forth, you're knocking shit over on both sides. So this That's is like true. a perfect example of like, okay, the, des- the, the you get to the destination eventually because the willow has to, at some point still, the wind has to stop blowing. So mm-hmm. you can take the route and maybe me, I'm like a Libra, and I go all over the place and knock everything down as a way to test my environment and figure out where the work is. But then there are some people that are like oaks and they just figure it out. That's just their, their point of focus. That's just their karma in this life. They are just strong and they're always going to be that way. You're just flopping around, losing your leaves, <laughs> knocking shit over. <laughs> right? But you know what? Willows it. take up a lot of space in the artistic community when it comes to photography. I'm there in the background swinging back and forth. You know what I mean? <laughs> For sure. <laughs> I like those really, really beautiful music videos like or like uh, Robin Williams with Dreams May Come where they're like running through the meadows. Like, you see that? That's me in the background, oh, kind of flying yeah, back and so forth. beautiful. Gosh, that's but one of my oak, favorite movies. But the oak trees, the oak trees are very strong too. You know why? Because you can hang out underneath them. They provide you with shade from the sun, mm-hmm. right? You can yeah. build a lot of things out of the wood, right? You can, you can climb on them, hang out. You can climb sometimes on they them. Get, yeah, they grow cool moss sometimes. Nice. There's a, exactly. Multiple roads to one destination. Okay. So adults with a secure attachment style usually have positive views of themselves and others. They're comfortable mm-hmm. with intimate relationships. They're able to trust their partner and they're not afraid of closeness. This is how it pertains to, say you're older now, you're like in your 30s and you're kind of struggling with what your attachment style is. Well, I don't know if you were, if you were secure, but people with secure attachment styles tend to be pretty okay in the realm of relationships, right? This mm-hmm. means that their parents formed loving, uh, secure connection with them, more than likely showed them really strong boundaries and uh, because your parents provided that sort of maybe oak type of energy, made you feel safe, you were able to develop your own sense of self because all of your needs have been met. You know, I think that the the three most, um, I guess, poignant manifestations of this trait are that they're not easily triggered. I'd say that that's probably number one. Um, people who are secure are not easily triggered. And if they are triggered, they're able to work through it and be attuned to what's happening in their emotions. And all of the other, all of the other attachment styles are unable to do that. So yeah. um, if you ever have, if you're ever like trying to think and, and decipher which is which, look at that. Look at that one, that one portion about um, triggering yeah. and the response and true to be- triggers. Be- and that's really important to have all of your needs met because if your parents provide you the solid foundation of not having to worry about all of the sort of like things that you require as a, as a, as a human being, like if they feed you, if they house you, if they give you the ability to self-reflect and discover what your creative interests are, all of this happens because you have a parent that is being that sort of strong presence in your life and allows you to focus on other things other than survival. So with those yeah. secure attachment styles, they're not after a while, they're not they're not gathering their sense of self from their external environment because they have created their own sort of strong inward environment 
So it doesn't matter what's happening out there. I think that they have the emotional capacity to care and love and all those things. But if somebody comes as an adult, decides to shit all over that, you're not going to be too affected by it because your sense of self is not is not dependent on what somebody else feels about you. Yeah. Right? These people generally have like pretty good self-esteem and um, a healthy view of their self and they can trust other people and, and not trust super easily, but trust whenever it's earned. So it, the, the, obviously those are the positive sides, but considering that yeah. you are coming from a secure attachment style, Jen, what do you see the downsides are to being too secure? <laughs> being too secure, um, you can come off as being, I don't want to say insensitive, um, but maybe and maybe uncaring. You know, maybe apathetic is the best word, apathetic. So I think that that's one of the downsides for sure. And I see that in my personality as people kind of confuse my, um, because I'm not easily excited and I don't have like a high range of emotions. Like I'm not a, I'm, I don't get too excited. I don't get too high with the highs and I don't get too low with the lows. So I think that that can come off as apathy. Yeah. But at the same time, that's also people's judgment of you. Like you were just being who you are. And if somebody is strong, uh, almost like strong in themselves, in their own sense of self, they wouldn't see that as a threat. Like they wouldn't see your stance on how you feel as a negative thing, but you're right. It could come across that way, right? Because you're so, you're so self-dependent that, uh, like I was talking about earlier, they tend to be people that, that are, are really into business, which you happen to be. You're a very career-oriented person. They're really into their goals. They're really into making things happen uh, to the extent that sometimes maybe they forget about other people. Mm-hmm. So what do you think yeah. that those secure styles can um, practice in order to build more of that? You know, that's a, that's a good question. I didn't really, I've never really thought about that, but I would say try to be a little bit more sensitive to other attachment styles, you know, Um, because everybody, everybody experiences trauma in very different ways. So if you're dealing with somebody that has um, an anxious, preoccupied attachment style and they're super high anxiety and, you know, I'm not, I have no anxiety almost ever, like it's pretty rare. Um, so just trying to understand and understand other people and like where they come from, because it's very good. hard to relate, you know, like, especially like depression is another one. Like i I wake up every morning happy. Like, yeah. I, I don't think that there, there have been very few times in my life where I was like so sad that I would classify that as being depressed, but there's some people yeah. that are just born that way and they wake up that way every single day. And because I'm not that way, I have a really hard time understanding what their life is like. So, but it, but um, it's, it's not like you're completely void of these feelings. You're just not choosing no, it as a lifestyle. Like it's not I a part of your character, but it is something that you feel sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. But it's pretty rare and well, it's hard good. because you don't know what you don't know. Like it's not something that I experienced. So yeah. it's really hard for me to relate to people who do, do suffer from those issues. I notice like the secure, the secure people tend to have really, really strong boundaries. Like they, I, yes. I wouldn't say, I don't know what your thoughts on this. Maybe they can be almost too idealistic in relationships. You know what I mean? Like, like they, that makes they want relationships that make them feel as safe and, sec- and as secure as maybe their family made them feel growing up. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. But I think potential partners have to blow your fucking minds for you to want to commit to them. That's right? a lot to live up to. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a good thing, right? Because you're kind of weeding through the stuff that, you know, doesn't serve you. But, uh, mm-hmm. you know, you got to be really careful with that because you could end up being alone eventually. Yeah, it's true. So that is secure attachment style. And uh, I took the test as well. I came back with anxious and an anxious attachment style is actually preoccupied. Mine's a little interesting, Jen, because when I look back on my childhood, I tend to think of two different lives. There was the life that I lived when my parents were together up until about sixth grade. And then there was the period of time after that where my parents divorced and I 
I lived with one parent, which is my father, for most of my teens. And then once I got a little older, maybe 17 or 18, I kind of removed myself from that situation out of uh, because of a, it was coming from a really toxic sort of situation back into having my mother in my life just predominantly. And she happens to be a really healthy, really amazing woman. So I got to mm-hmm. sort of like experience the lowest part. I, I got to experience all three from my perspective, three, the first one being I got to experience some balance when I was young, although there was some toxicity there. I got to experience the, the absolute darkest side of humanity in my teens with my father. Mm-hmm. And then when I got mm-hmm. older, in my young adult years, I got to experience a really healthy sort of upbringing with my mom. I got to experience all different types of things. And when I was living with my father when I was younger, there was a, a period of my life between, I want to say, three or four years when I wasn't even with my father. I was living with other families, and those families had their own sort of curriculum when it came to raising their children. So I was, I lived with a family that studied Buddhism. I lived with a family that was Mormon. I lived with a family that was Jehovah's Witness. I lived with a lot more families than people typically do. And I think that gave me a really, really good perspective when it came to, I guess, the spiritual dimension of how it moves in a family. I got to experience a really, really large spectrum. Anyways, so I took this test kind of thinking about my childhood. I wouldn't say that I'm in this place now, but as it pertains to how I may have been affected by my childhood. If I had not done the work on myself, I would likely still be in this sort of anxious attachment style, which is low avoidance, mm-hmm. preoccupied. So this is 19% of adults have uh, the anxious attachment style type, according to Hazen and Shaver's research. And, and this they, is, <laughs> what's that? I think this number is probably a lot higher now. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. It's definitely a lot higher now because we live in a very anxious, very anxious society. But you know what? There are some advantages to this, Jen. There are some advantages to having a healthy amount of anxiety, especially Mm -hmm. in the sort of Western world in which we live. So those with an anxious attachment style, anxious, preoccupied attachment style, usually have low self-esteem and a more positive view of others. They seek out intimacy and security from others, especially from romantic partners, However, Mm -hmm. they can often become overly dependent on relationships, which can lead to overwhelming panic and worry about their partner's behaviors and intention. So they they tend to have, they tend to be really, really into the idea. I mean, I'm going to speak from my experience because I'm a Libra. Love has always been one of those things that has been at the forefront of my life. And it could, one could say it's because I didn't have that much of it when I was young, but one could say that. It's just because I've had so many different experiences with so many different people, I realize that love is something that is so important to have in, just in your life. Um, but I went through this as a child. I went through this as a teenager, Jen. I've been that needy boyfriend before. I've been that sort of person that feared being abandoned by a parent. I've been mm-hmm. that sort of person that suffered through lo- like lots of anxiety because of uh, how I felt others perceived me to be. So that obviously that spoke to having a very sort of fragile or confusing sense of self because, you know, your family, your caretaker wasn't in your life enough back then for you to develop that. So what I, what I did growing up is I learned how to develop that through my behavior with other people in a lot of ways, making tons of mistakes, getting my heart broken so many times, being both the toxic partner, but also the loving partner, being the one that had gotten cheated on, the one that had been, you know, subject to abuse, but also been the one that also wasn't nice in relationships. I, as a Libra, I feel like that sort of pendulum swung back and forth throughout my life. It has also been a blessing in a lot of ways because it's really, in retrospect, nice to have the perspective of being on both sides of the fence. Right. Like you can tell how your behavior affects somebody else through making, you know, all these different types of mistakes and, and really diving into 
all these different types of fear. So I feel like now I'm a lot more secure in my attachment style because of kind of like how you look at how you were raised growing up. I use that as an example, what not to be or what I could potentially fall into if I um, didn't do the work on myself in order to improve that. So when you when you were in school, you said that... Um that you were like sometimes the more needy partner, the more codependent partner. How did that manifest? Well, like what were some of the things that you did that would uh, push your partner away? Well, the interesting thing is that I grew up really, really fast. And I acknowledged really, really early, I think it was in elementary and middle school, that I was seeking out a love that I wish I had gotten from my parents. And I acknowledged that. you were self-actualized enough to understand that in elementary yeah. school? Absolutely. Wow. Yeah, well, no, no, not elementary school, middle school to high school. Middle school, okay. Right, okay, I started to sort okay. of awaken to that, right? Because yeah. you're surrounded by all these children all around you that seem to have good upbringings, right? Mm-hmm. So when you don't have that, you automatically feel as if there might be something wrong with you. You start asking those questions like, well, why Why is my sort of living situation so different? Yeah. And then uh, a really unique thing happened was when I was younger, Uh, I was a Jehovah's Witness, and when my parents divorced, one thing that they didn't tell you, or at least one thing I didn't understand at that time, is that they completely kick you out of the church for divorcing. Oh, Oh, surprise. (laughs) They they just booted you out. It didn't matter how long you spend there. It didn't matter how good of a person you were. They just, they call it disfellowship. They disfellowshiped us from the church, and uh, that completely crushed my family. Like, it, it, it didn't crush me as much because I was too young, but it crushed my father and my mother. And to see how it crushed them, really experiencing that so early caused me to question this whole spirituality, this whole Christianity thing. Because in my mind, it was one of those things that people extracted tons of love and acceptance and appreciation and compassion for. So this one thing that I identified God as being this loving sort of character all of a sudden came down on my family in a negative way. And so that caused me to question like, okay, well, if this is a loving God, if this is uh, religion is, is about being good and being loving, then why can a church so quickly just toss you into the trash? And how I, how it, how I observed it negatively impact my family, like really, really got to me. So I started asking those questions really early on. That's when I started diving into, I guess, the differences in religions. And when I lived with other families, I got to see in a, a, a screenshot of how this sort of exemplifies itself in other people too. But when I was in relationships, I remember I did come across as that sort of needy type. Not all the time, but with, uh, but it, but it sort of peaked its, its head in there every once in a while. You know, like uh, I always sort of had this like borderline, this uh, baseline level of fear of, of an abandonment that I wasn't good enough, that I wasn't um, entertaining or, or creative enough in order to hold the attention of a significant other or a partner. So it led me to fear that like, oh, they, that I couldn't be a good partner to them. Yeah. You know, what's interesting about that whole Jehovah's Witness thing and being disfellowshipped is, you know, your church is so much your support system in, in that religion. And to have your church and to have your, your friends and your family and everyone you know pretty much turn their back on you for getting a divorce. I asked them questions because I had some friends that were um, Jehovah's Witness about that because I couldn't quite understand that either. Like how you could say you love someone and you support them, but you can so easily turn your back on them. The way that they explained it to me is it's kind of like a tough love. So they don't believe in divorce. So they feel like if they give you that tough love that you're going to lose everyone, not just, you know, your significant other, that um, you would stay in the relationship and work it out. But, and I was like, interesting. But it's it, easy it just not, seems so counterintuitive, counterintuitive. 
100%. It's easy to not need religion when everything is going okay. But it's when you need it the most is when you're at your absolute lowest point. And this is lowest, something that I right. acknowledged and understood as a kid too, as a even as a teenager. I was like, well, isn't Christianity designed for this very moment, mm-hmm. right? Exactly. If God is a, yeah. a loving and compassionate God, then he would acknowledge that as a perfect opportunity to transform into something good. But this is going back to the sort of like antiquated fire and brimstone type of shit. Like according to these people, God was also a vengeful, jealous God, right? Yeah. So it just kind of speaks to God having almost like his own sort of personality disorder. Sometimes he's angry, sometimes he's jealous, sometimes he loves you, sometimes he doesn't. I'm like, come on, God is not a human being. Like, I think that's a result of people taking too much of a literal interpretation of, 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 of God having sort of the same attributes as a human being. Like, God is far beyond any of that stuff. And I feel right. like, you know, experiencing that so young and having your having the ground sort of ripped out from underneath you, that would make any adult or any child unstable. unstable and it certainly and was for my family. And, and not be able to form trusting relationships, like all of those things. I mean, that contributes oh, yeah. to so much trauma and dysfunction. Absolutely. I don't right. know if I told you yeah. this story, Jen, but when I was a Jehovah's Witnesses, one of the memories that I remember is that they would they would send a, what they called an elder to your house. And uh, mm-hmm. he was like a fellow that was sort of baptized in the church, and he would sit down and have Bible study with you. I got it. My brother got it. My sister got it, right? And didn't seem like anything wrong with it. They were just sharing stories from the Bible or whatever. There was this guy that I remember. I forget his name, but he was from uh, the last name. The family was Korsky. That was the name of them. I can say that because this is something that you'll find in the funny papers. Anyways, I think it was maybe two or three years ago. I just thought to myself, like, I wonder if that family is still around, like what they're doing. I looked it up. Apparently, I, I found an article, Jen, that their guy one of one of the elders with the last name Gorski that used to come to my house and do Bible study with myself, my brother, as well as my sister, got arrested in Arizona for child molestation. Child molestation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's what's interesting about um, about the Jehovah's Witness Church too, is they don't believe in you know they don't really believe in like uh, having the police involved, and they like to take care of everything within the church. So I've. I always like thought that that cult. was really interesting because they protect they protect these people. Like whenever they find out about them doing wrong, um, they protect them and shield them. Yeah, it's, it's really, crazy. It's really bizarre. It's like if you if you didn't if you didn't have that sort of sense of self nurtured and cultivated by your parents, that sort of denomination of spirituality absolutely sort of crushed any potential of you developing that. Mm-hmm. Just off of how they kind of conduct their business, it's crazy to think that that guy was in our house. That I actually right. sat with this guy all the time, and, and yeah. obviously I wasn't abused, but mm-hmm. I don't know how many people he had actually done that to, and I don't know how his behavior would have affected me so young because I don't really remember the sort of uh, the specifics of that. Mm-hmm. But we are so vulnerable and so open to these type of abuses when we're a kid, and it's no surprise. It's no. It, it almost seems like fucking impossible to somebody for somebody just in regular everyday life to come out of this whole thing unscathed. These are difficult things that we sort of move through. Anyway, so it was a really, really confusing, really, really interesting life. But if I think back at it in retrospect, I wouldn't change anything about it because I learned so much about the light as well as the shadow in venturing into that world. Love has been a moderating force, I think, moving me through that because a lot of the mistakes that I made were in relationships because when you don't have that sort of like healthy, secure attachment style as a child, you go looking for it in relationships. You go looking for it in friendships. And Mm -hmm. so 
because that took the place of parents. I spent a lot of time with friends. I spent a lot of time with partners. And in a lot of ways, the route that I took was being raised by my friends and being raised by my partners. It's not the easiest task because these are people that you have to exercise some level of vulnerability, especially me being a lover. Like I was looking for that love, not even realizing that I needed to develop that strong sense of self in myself before I even thought about going in that direction. So in other words, I did everything completely ass backwards, <laughs> right? I made every possible mistake you could possibly make into a relationship until one day. And this is the thing about these anxious sort of attachment styles is if your parents are not available in your life, you get comfortable and used to operating from your flight or fight responses. And once your parents yeah. exit your life, you are always running at a million miles an hour being driven by the fear that you have in your life. And that, that car never stops. It keeps going. This is the reason why some of these children or some of these adults have this sort of anxious energy to them. There's this almost seeking type of mentality. There's this need to, to find something that they're looking for. And this can be a blessing in a lot of ways because it drives you completely to this breaking point where you absolutely have to change. So at some point, I think whether or not it happens when you're a kid or happens when you're an adult, at one point you hit a wall. It can happen by getting your heart broken by that one person that you absolutely love. It can it come from, you know, battling with an addiction that you just absolutely have to get over and heal from. It can happen by somebody dying. It can happen in a lot of different ways. But I know from my experience that it usually happens through something really, really significant happening that has this sort of potential and tendency to break you so hard that you absolutely have to change in order to move forward. And that was me. That was yeah. me. And that sort of got the gears going into my sort of spiritual journey. And that's the, the, where I've been on uh, ever since. In some ways, I can understand why I, will ha- why I would have chosen this life and why I would have chosen to be a Libra. Because as chaotic as it is, from a really, really uh, large place of awareness looking in, it's romantic as fuck, Jen. You know, I wonder if they gave us like, whenever we were choosing to come to earth and like what we wanted to be and what lessons we wanted to learn. And did we get like a, I don't know, a a paper of all the Zodiacs and their traits and were we able to pick and be like, (laughs) yeah, no, this sounds good. That sounds like the kind of type of person I'd like to be. (laughs) God has a little laser pointer. It's like, like, which one do you want? Do you want this one? It's like the claw machine. It's like that that galactic claw machine. It's like, okay, whichever one you can pick up is the one that you're going to (laughs) be. Or they like spin a wheel. It's like one of those little wheels you spin. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, if we're we're going to be honest and sincere about it, what I think it is, is that you're sitting on your couch in your home in the heavens next to your partner. And you're doing that for like thousands and thousands and thousands of years until one day you are like, you know what, honey, I think, uh, I think I'd I'd like to just polish this part, this part of my spirit just a little bit more. And I think this would sort of improve our relationship. I think it'll improve the way that in which we connect I'm going to go back down to the sort of center for reincarnation across the street and I'm going to go learn that and be back. And because there's no sense of linear time in that world to them, it's like Mm -hmm. taking a walk in the park. They're like, okay, I'll be back in like a few hours. And then you go and then you do it and you you get dropped into the the aliens just come and just drop you off on this planet. And you go through this entire sort of curriculum learning whatever it is that you plan to learn. And then you go back and you walk through the door and you're like, hey, I'm home. And she's like, oh, Okay. I got the table set. It's time for dinner. You kind of carry on doing your business. I wonder, I wonder how long it feels, you know, and what if you're not like a good human the first go round? You're like, yeah, I'm going to go to earth. I'm going to go check this shit out, see how it is. And then you come and you didn't learn anything. 
And well, then they're like, nope, you got to go back because you didn't learn anything. And then you no, go well, back the a thing. few more that's times. The reason why you can go back as many times as you want, Jen. You can go so as your many partner times just waiting? You... Are they like, God, he went back to Earth again. <laughs> it's hard to go live it's... another another lifetime. I guess I'm going to yeah. be waiting another 15 minutes for, for dinner. Girl, this motherfucker's know. late again. <laughs> they're like, remember that time when you were late like five lifetimes ago? Look, I'm not dealing with this anymore. It's hard to wrap your brain around the idea of there being yeah. no time because we're right. trying to figure this out with a mind that is trapped within the frame of, of time. Oh my gosh. You know, yeah. like it, the only time reason like why regulates. we understand time is because of the fact that our bodies are deteriorating. Like mm-hmm. you look in the mirror, you just see time on our face because of the fact that we age. So that's how our body sort of affiliates itself with time. But if we extracted our spirits from this body, and we're just sort of traversing through the cosmos, that time wouldn't exist because we wouldn't have a body that is trying to prevent us from understanding the timeless. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. In, okay, in, last it, style, last style. <laughs> well, but then I wanted to talk about this because uh, I, I spent a lot of time talking about the negative aspect of this. But the thing is, is although these attachments, these anxious attachments, they carry a lot of wounds with them, they're typically some of the strongest and emotionally engaged people, right? Because they had to learn everything on their own, right? They had to... Sense. They had to develop through their own experience. And so at least from my, I'm not talking about just myself, a lot of these people fall into the realm of being really empaths, right? Into the realm of being highly sensitive people. Uh, mm-hmm. And there's a, there's a beauty in going through a struggle so intense because you get to experience all the dynamics and the full spectrum of what life entails and I think that is the perfect sort of battleground to learn everything that you need to learn about love. These tend to be the strongest people. And if they can learn to transform their attachment style, they can be some of the most passionate, introspective, and strongest strongest people in the world. To delve into shadow at such a, a young age and sort of come out of it, um, I think is really important. But I feel like if you're somebody right now that has an anxious attachment style that you want to sort of start moving outside of, I think the, the best thing that you can do, and I'm just coming from my experience, is you need to spend some time alone. You need to spend okay. some time alone, spend some time meditating, uh, spend some time channeling your, your emotions through your art, figuring out who you are, writing, being more introspective if you're not already, but spending a lot of time alone and developing your own strong sense of self. If you, you know, didn't have all of the different examples of of how to move through your life like I did uh, by making tons and tons of mistakes, I think the best way to really awaken to a much higher s- sort of secure power is to just practice being alone and being yeah. with yourself. Because if you, if, you, if you cultivate that within yourself, the practice of being alone, then you'll, you'll start to fall in love with aspects of yourself. You'll start to accept aspects of yourself. You'll start to develop your own sort of unique relationship with not only just your spirit, but also your ego, so that when you finally go out into the world, you're not going to be gathering your sense of self so much from other people. You'll be collaborating more with others, and you'll be able to, you know, live that more secure lifestyle. All right. So the last and final style, the disorganized style, fearful avoidant. Yeah, that's the last style. 25% of adults have the avoidant attachment type, Jen. 25%. 25%? In, that seems I mean, high. It seems high. I mean, for this, this is a pretty chaotic, this is a, the, the most chaotic of them all. The people with the dismissive avoidant attachment style tend to have a positive self-view. Actually, I don't think this is the worst one. Wait, no, no, this isn't the worst one. So, so people with a dismissive avoidant attachment style tend to have a positive view, self-view and a more negative view of others. Uh, stemming from avoidant childhood attachment, they value their independence highly and may get nervous when somebody gets too close. 
It is important for them to feel self-sufficient and often attempt to avoid attachment altogether. Yeah, this right? was this is the one that I kind of go back and forth with. These people are like, yeah, they downplay the importance of relationships. They're really independent. Fear um, they're very self-reliant, and they're not very they're not very vulnerable. They put up a lot of walls, and then their triggers are fight or flight, which is like a hundred percent me. So these type of people tend to be distant partners, just like Jen said, emotionally unavailable out of fear of being hurt. Uh, they typically developed a sort of form of thick skin from maybe the neglect that they felt from their parents, and they are prone to anger and resentment if you futz around with them in the wrong way. And it, it, at least to me, it seems to indicate that the parents were not always directly physically or emotionally abusive. They were just neglectful. Like the parents just like took mm -hmm. off and the kid just developed his own sort of fears of abandonment through this thing. I mean, they may be emotionally or, or physically abusive, but in terms of this fear, overall fear of other people leaving you, that sort of thing, I think neglect is the driving force with that thing. So it's a, a combination of fear responses and emotional withdrawal as a way to distance themselves from the potential of being hurt or abandoned. And obviously, mm -hmm. when you're not given proper guidance as to how to love someone or the self, you tend to fall into these sort of realms. So the, the issue, I think, is the avoidance often experience trauma or neglect so intense they would rather not ever place themselves into situations that would potentially hurt them. They're almost like dogs that have been uh, abused by their owners. You, you touch them once and they just attack you. Yeah, it's a, it's like you're punished for relying on your parents. This can be like an indicator of like being with a narcissistic parent too. For sure. Like there, there's no and sense of stability between what you consider like uh, maybe a good, solid, loving behavior and between what is, uh, you know, the opposite of that. So I, I imagine that this type tends to have trouble with boundaries. Big time. And um, this this category of people are your narcissist, are your substance, abu substance abusers, people who are emotionally, uh, emotionally or verbally abusive or just like totally emotionally unavailable. It's this true. is Yeah. This, it, this is kind of interesting that like uh, your parents ignoring you and and uh, almost punishing you for for being dependent on them. It's interesting how how it shapes that will shape you into a narcissist. Yeah, because I, I think uh, the sort of tendencies that narcissistic parents tend to have is that they tend to uh, rely on their children to help them move through really adult type of concepts, right? So if you have a, yeah. a, a parent that's an addict or a parent that's a narcissist, that's an alcoholic. Typically, they will use their children as sort of like these pin cushions. They'll just dump all of their garbage onto their kids. So one day they'll come home angry for a reason that the child doesn't understand. And who gets the mm -hmm. blunt force of that? The child does. Or one day yep. they'll come home and they're just super happy and the child gets this sort of uh, the energy of that too. But that's confusing for a child because there's no consistency there. Like the child never learns yeah. what is up, what is down, what is left, what is right, what is proper, what is improper behavior. It's like you just are all over the place because they are exemplifying what the parent is expressing to them, which is that they are also all over the place and unstable. And because they lack that sort of emotional sense of intimacy, they can come across also as cold and selfish and they can be both abusers, but also the abused in relationships as well. So this speaks mm -hmm. to uh, an attachments type that, that tends to be so unbelievably either vulnerable that they end up, uh, I think, being abused by other people. They have sort of like a lack of boundaries. They really need to learn to trust others. I think that's what the main thing that I gather from this, uh, <clears throat> this attachment style is being more empathetic, maybe sensitive to the feeling of others, give up control. I think that these types do want love. However, their distrust for others prevent them from reaching it. Yeah, right? absolutely. And they even get annoyed easily and um, lack patience whenever somebody else needs something from them. Um, and it's mainly just like repeating that behavior. 
that was exhibited by their parents. And this is the interesting thing, as I feel like as human beings, like everybody wants to be loved. Even if there's somebody that mm-hmm. is completely avoidant of it, that's where you run into these sort of bipolar type of situations where it's like they, they're emotionally distanced out of fear of being abandoned, but they just don't have a healthy way of communicating that the fact that they still want to be loved. So it's like this mm-hmm. r- really interesting thing that happens where they just, they, they really have to dive inwards and cultivate that love from within. And this is, uh, <clears throat> goes back to what I said earlier at the podcast, which is that, that whole book, you know, I hate you, don't leave me. This is, I think, what happens when parents don't give validation to your kids, right? If a, if a kid looks up at the sky and says, that's the sun, the mother should look at the sun and be like, yes, that's right, that's the sun. If a, a, a child sees a, a, a person hugging another person and the child goes, oh, look at that. That is uh, two people hugging. That's love. And the parent should look at that and be like, yes, that is absolutely correct. That is what it means to love somebody. You don't get that when you're with an emotionally abusive parent. They don't validate your reality. So you always end up just being confused about what's going on. They can more or less sometimes make you feel like you're not good enough. Uh, They can make you feel like you're just tons of tons of self-esteem issues. You know what I mean? Especially when they're not validating how you feel. It's no surprise that you just have no point of context for your own emotions. I actually have a story about that and it's, it's fringe related, but so uh, my girlfriend had a baby whenever we were in high school and uh, a lot of people stopped talking to her because she was like considered slutty and what have you. Um, but we stayed friends and I would help her with her babies sometimes and babysit and that kind of thing. And um, she had a little boy. So she used to always call him son. And she didn't, she rarely called him by his name. She'd be like, son, stop, you know, like whatever. And uh, he, so that confused him. And whenever he would look at the sun outside, he would point at the sun and say moon. And she's like, no, no, that's the sun. And he's like, what? No, I'm sun. <laughs> so oh, it's just kind of funny. It made me think of made me think of him being that confused whenever you said you were talking about like, oh yeah, you know, your kid, whenever they point at the sun, you're like, Yes, that's the sun. Yeah, and you're <laughs> like you so con- him. And you're you're so confused and you don't realize how you've been mind fucked until you get older and people start telling you, like, right. Yes, that's the sun. Who told you that it wasn't the sun? You know right. what I mean? Like it's, 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 it's mm-hmm. pretty crazy when you, when you, uh, when you really, really think about it. I knew, um, a girl that like had like a narcissistic parent that like, you know, when you're a kid, it doesn't matter who the fuck you are. Like if you're a parent, you're going to tell your child that your child's beautiful, that your child is, you know, enough and that your child is, is, uh, talented and smart and all those things that parents typically tell, you know, mm-hmm. but if a parent comes home and, 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 or maybe throws a party and they want you to get dressed up and you don't look exactly the way that they want you to look. And then they go like, Oh no, you don't look pretty. You don't look good enough. Blah, blah, blah. blah. All of a sudden you start identifying with this crazy talk, developing mm-hmm. your sense of self based off of that. It's like that is another form of invalidation, you know. Like uh, it, it's crazy right. to think of how how much our how much those sort of narcissistic types tend to gaslight their their own children. You I know? know, it's crazy. And, and that isn't even the word. That is that isn't even. There's one more attachment style, Jen. I know. Did yeah. we go over and the, this the is fearful? To me, the avoidant? craziest one. The fearful, um, fearful avoidant, avoidant attachment. It's the last style. one. Yeah, the disorganized attachment. This is yeah. the push pull. This is the I love you, I hate you. Oh, see, I this need is you. Like, I don't want you. The, the variations of this, because the last one could be that way too, right? Yeah. But they're on the other side mm-hmm. of that spectrum of high anxiety. So both of them can be very similar. This is kind of what happens on the more extreme side. So mm-hmm. a fearful avoidant attachment style usually stems from either avoidant attachment or disorganized attachment as a child. Just like I said, adults with a fearful avoidant attachment style want intimate relationships, but are uncomfortable with closeness and find it difficult to trust or depend on others. They are fearful of getting hurt if they get close to other people. 
So they choose to avoid intimate relationships instead. So this yeah, is the type of environment that influences. strong fear of rejection. Oh, yeah. In, in every aspect of their life. It's, it's really interesting. It's not just with loving attachments. It's with like work and anything else. They, they often won't pursue career or careers or hobbies or passions because um, they're afraid of rejection. And this is like zero boundaries, right? People with uh, fearful avoidant attachment both desperately crave attention and want to avoid it at the same time. How confusing yeah. is that? Even as an adult to Very wrap your confusing. brain around the fact that like somebody wants love, but they don't want it at the same time. And it always reminds me of like what happens when a child is not properly, I guess, taught by their parent. There's a certain part of them that stays within the trauma and never evolves past infancy. There's a certain part of them that never evolves past being a child. You notice how right. we climb kind of deeper into this fearful avoidant attachment style the, how we're talking about these qualities, they're more like children. They're more yeah. like infants that don't know what they feel, right? It's like a child screaming for, like, you know, when you, when you hear a, a child screaming, you have no idea what they want because they have absolutely no way of telling you what they need. So instead of communicating like an adult, like, you know, this is what I need, this is what I don't need, it almost seems like these types that end up being sort of taken advantage of by their their parents or, or being abused or emotionally abused by their parents, they never treat their children that. So they remain children. They don't know how to communicate what they want. They don't know what they want. They want something. They want love, mm-hmm. but they don't know how to go about getting it. And then once they get it, they don't know what to do with it, right? Right. So it just shows you an yeah. example of like how we don't evolve past our trauma when you're that type. This sounds a lot like borderline personality disorder. For sure. Lots of the hey, same right. traits, you know? That um, that unpredictable attachment style, you know, one day they they're love bombing you and they love you and they want to be with you, and then the next day they're saying that you smothered them and it's too much, and then they that's their rationale for retreating. Yeah, it, it sort of just speaks really to this 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 not knowing what to do. Right. It's like they want it, but they don't know how to communicate what they need and what they want. I think these fall into the more spectrum cluster B mood disorders, right? Yeah. They tend to. They, fortunately, they tend to be more, more more narcissistic, have bipolar personality disorders. It reminds me of this um, uh, when I thought about the idea of like people that tend to chase partners in relationships, right? Mm-hmm. And we've all been with a partner that we had to chase for prolonged periods of time, or we know somebody that is just in this sort of roundabout circular motion with a, a, a significant other where they're just chasing them all the time. And there are some other partners that like being chased, but I was thinking about this, like I wonder if people, or at least I actually observe this, I wonder if the people that become so preoccupied with chasing a partner, I noticed when they finally get that partner, they lose interest in them, right? Yeah. Because as long as they're chasing the partner, as long as they're chasing the partner, they never have to actively work on committing to them, right? Mm -hmm. So that's a perfect example of how they're always in between. They're always in between either being with them or not being with them. As long as they're chasing them, they never have to commit to them. And then once they get the partner, they lose interest in them because obviously they don't know what they want. So it's easier to just chase somebody and pursue somebody than it is to actually commit yourself to being in a relationship. So maybe some people would consider that games, but I feel like that type of tendency would fall into this realm. And yeah, I think that they often- also like come across as being cool on the outside, but inside their nervous system is like at a level 10, like high alert. So absolutely. sometimes it's even hard to identify them because they'll- the way that they're exhibiting on the outside is not the way that they feel on the inside. Oh, yeah. 
and they could they could have careers. They they you know these are functional people in society. It's just you know that you can get the three D materialistic stuff out of the way one hundred percent. There's mm-hmm. a still part of your brain that has to develop and in, in, into you know being knowing how to survive and take care of yourself. But that doesn't mean that the emotional side of how we give and receive love ever evolves. You know, one thing that I notice about maybe these types is they often tend to seek relationships similar to that of their abusive parent as a means uh, for comfort and familiarity. If you're somebody that isn't necessarily narcissistic, you may actually go looking for partners that are narcissistic just as a way to sort of like uh, relate to the world or your partner in some way and uh, end up finding partners that will be just as abusive to you as your parent once was. It's so crazy, right? How that it just all passes and it goes and it gets, it's the perfect example of how karma just sort of is, is passed from parent to child, from child to, you know, it just goes on and goes on and on and on. Somebody has to take accountability for that at some point. And this is the reason why I think people get into spirituality because we're not only just healing ourselves in this sort of dimension that we're in when it comes to the spiritual stuff. We're healing. We can be healing an entire lineage of our ancestors and all of the trauma that they experienced. And that's the reason why it's just such a powerful thing when you look more inwards because some people, especially maybe those types, when they look inwards, there's a lot of fear because there's this feeling that they're alone. It's like, no, you're not alone. You have thousands and thousands of years of experience with your ancestry inside of your veins when you do this work. And when you decide to do this work, you're not doing it for just yourself. You're doing it for your entire family. So when you feel that sense of joy from overcoming adversity or from healing those wounds, you should feel a lot of joy and happiness knowing that you're doing this for not just yourself but for your entire fucking family and how they feel like this exemplifies itself in your life you'll start to change you'll and and you'll start to be happy you'll start to be more loving and what will end up happening is the people in your life perhaps your toxic family will start to see that they'll start to see that and maybe they'll start to change or that narcissistic parent will still test you they'll try and break you and then they realize at some point that they can't maybe that inspires them to change as well you never know. You never know. So obviously these types can tend to be indecisive in relationships. They can have commitment issues. So I feel like it would really help them to really, really get some therapy, you know, engage in some form of uh, healing modality. Psychedelic therapy would be a good one, right, Jen? This is a good one. Yeah. This is a good personality type for that for sure. Yeah. Love is very confusing to these people. Yeah. Like that they they just can't quite understand it and get it right and and how to operate from a place of love how to accept love, how to give love. It's yeah. just everything about love is very confusing. And yeah. these people also um, uh, take things personally. Maybe they should listen to our other episode about how to not take things personally. That's true. <laughs> this group and tends to, tends to yeah. do that. And, and before we go, and I don't want to sound like we're just totally crapping on this because there are a lot of people out there that are probably struggling with this that want to find a way out or yeah. want to change and, sure. and, and think of life in a, a lot more healthy of a way. But when I look at the spectrum of all of these attachment styles, these could have been potentially the most courageous people outside of this universe that decided to come into earth because this is a difficult task. Even when, even, you know, when I watch videos, uh, talking or of, of people that practice cognitive behavioral therapy, people that practice dialectical behavior therapy, I've even talked to Ryan Heapy. He's yeah. a dialectical behavior therapist. They all say the same thing. These are very difficult people to treat because these are traumas that go as far back as obviously infancy and it's it, the person that is looking to get better they have to really 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 want want to change mm-hmm. so i think it would really really help to do some uh, inner work and introspection i think the first thing is to just be really really honest about how your life is being affected by this 
by looking at your relationships, how your actions tend to impact and hurt other people and uh, start from there. I mean, it's not your fault. And yeah. a lot of the, a lot of these behaviors start, you know, just like you said, when you're seven months old, like yeah. you, the, this isn't your fault, the way that your parents raised you and, you know, those outcomes of trauma. So find a good trauma therapist, you know, maybe think about doing some ketamine or some other disassociative to, to work through the trauma, um, uh, or even, uh, a therapist that specializes in somatic experiencing. That's a, that's a good, a good uh, therapist to look up to. The good news is, is you can change you. You just because you may be stuck in one of these patterns now doesn't mean that it's permanent. So everything can be resolved with, like you said, self-introspection and reflection and doing the inner work, doing the therapy, doing all the things. All the things. And we could, even as we live our adult lives, we could be all across the spectrum. You know, I think we have our, our toes into at least uh, probably more than one of these things at any given point. So we're all evolving. Mm-hmm. We can de-evolve. We can evolve past these things. And I feel like this is all a collective effort. Everybody's trying to practice balance. I think balance is the most important thing, right? So you can definitely yeah. change, identify how you were affected by your past, you know, analyze your relationships with your parents, work on your sense of self. Because I, I think that at some point, spirit, God, source, whatever it is that you believe will give you an opportunity to awaken to these things. Yeah. I feel like everybody, it's like everybody goes through this. Like everybody at some point, the light switch goes on. It could be, you know, through a psychedelic experience. It could be through a breakup. It could be through getting to your lowest mm-hmm. point. Source always flicks the light switch on at some point and illuminates all of this for you. And it's really about how deep into that you want to go, but everybody gets the opportunity to do it. And you will get yeah. that opportunity if you haven't gotten it already. And when that light switch goes on, you can never go back. You have to go down that path of improving this and um, getting better, right? I think acceptance okay. and uh, understanding is a really, really important, really important place to start, right? And I, I think it's really okay. important that we not focus too much on the labels, even though we're going over the definitions of these things. These, are, these are, again, are not definitive lines in the sand. Just like Jen said, they're always subject to change. Uh, this stuff is really just to, uh, I guess these categories are just fundamental building blocks to help give you some perspective about how your childhood may have impacted certain behaviors in your relationship. In the end, I think resolving yourself of your story is where I think true freedom lies. Is uh, If you get to a point where you can just throw all the shit out the window, I recommend you throw it all out the window because once you do, you'll be left with this sort of beautiful, graceful type of energy that just will not give a fuck. You know, about any of this crazy stuff, you'll just operate from love. But you have to want to invest in yourself. Invest in your growth, invest in your learning, invest in your healing. It's worth it. When we awaken, only we can take accountability and control over ourselves. The question is whether or not you have enough courage to shine your light, because that's another thing that uh, I guess these these types tend to struggle with is that once they realize that they are fully, fully responsible for the outcome of their life, it kind of puts the ball in their court. You realize that you, at some point you can no longer blame your parents for being who you are. Yep. And this kind of changes our relationship with that. It's like, yes, they can give you a point of reference as to who you've been up until this point. But once that spirit wakes up in you and you realize that you have the power that can scare the shit out of a lot of people, especially at the beginning. I know it did for me. It reminds me of this quote by Marian Williamson where she says that, it isn't our darkness that most frightens us, it's our light. Once you experience that light, it, it's, it's a huge responsibility that comes along with embodying that because now you have to take accountability for everything that you do. Isn't that the truth? Ain't that the truth? That was a good one. That was Ain't a complex one, Jen. 
Yeah. It's a lot to learn from that one. Some strategies that I have for overcoming my anxious attachment style, you know, developing a better understanding of my attachment style, being aware. Looking back at my attachment history and understanding, you know, why I relate to people in the way that I do, I do today. And choosing, you know, choosing partners with secure attachment styles. That's really what I need. Or, you know, you know, uh, maybe a partner that also has a, a secure attachment style. It's always good. Yeah. Communicating with your partner so they're aware of your attachment style and can be empathetic towards you and your behavior. There's so many different ways that we can go about doing this, Jen. <laughs> we'll all find right. our way eventually. That's right. Use mindfulness exercises. Go online. There's tons and tons and tons of resources. Thank you guys for, for tuning in, joining us. This is a really complex subject. I hope that you learned or extracted something from it. You got to learn a little bit more about this life thing or a little bit about our lives. Happy to share it with you. This is a journey that we're on and we continue to be on. And uh, who knows, maybe two years from now, we could be super 100% super secure. I don't know if there's a style higher than secure, but, you know. Super the, the secure. Godlike, yeah, for sure. Godlike secure. That one. <laughs> yeah, thank you guys for tuning in. Divine Nobody's podcast. You can find our episode on, of course, all the platforms. You can go on IG. You can find us there. Go ahead and follow us. You can like and subscribe our show. Uh, subscribe to our show on, on YouTube if you want to see the videos you can reach out to us also through email divinenobodiespodcast.hotmail.com hotmail did I just I totally just said hotmail, hotmail you just said hotmail oh, <laughs> what, what year am I in right now no because uh, oh, G- was... we're talking about the past that's why that's why it happened we're talking yeah. about the past divinenobodiespodcast at gmail.com uh, send us some, some recommendations this podcast actually came as a result of uh, a recommendation uh, somebody um, gave us so if you're listening out there you're welcome Yeah, so we'll talk to you guys uh, next week. Talk to you guys soon. Namaste. Namaste, friends.